All right, good morning, everyone. How are we doing today? Good. So before I get started, I have something that I'd like you all to do. Not right now, of course, but after service. So Adam, and Adam did a great job, right, up there? Now him and his wife, Brittany, who's running the soundboard. And then if you have not met Dylan and Caitlin Adams, our new deacon in training, I'd like you, after service, to please introduce yourself, because they are some awesome people, and you will benefit yourself by getting to know them. Now, I know the past couple times I've been up here, I've caused some confusion as to my identity. I am not Mark Williams, pastor and elder here at Pierce Point Community Church. My name is Jacob Dolezal. I run our kids' ministry, and I am one of the deacons here. Now, I had a big, nice, long... Oh. Thank you, but I'll be here all morning. I had this big, long joke about Nathan not being here for sabbatical, and he's sitting right here, so we're just going to move on with, from that. So... No, no. <laughs> we're going to start by recapping what Nathan had went over last week. So we're going to be going to James 4, verses 1 through 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is the source not the, your pleasures that wage war and your body's parts? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend what you request on your pleasures. You adulteresses, you do not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God. Therefore, whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says to no purpose, he jealously desires the spirit whom he is made to dwell in us. But he gives us a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God, but resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and he will come close to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. We talked about last week about how friendship with the world means this, we are becoming an enemy of God. I talked about this greater grace and how God truly is the father from the story of the prodigal son. And so I get to take the baton mid-chapter from Nathan to last week. So let's go look at verses 11 through 17, because that's where we're going to be focusing today. Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But, you who, but who are you judging your neighbor? Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. 
For we are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. This is continuing on with the thought that James had in the first part of the verse, or first part of the chapter. We're still talking about conflict among believers and the repercussions of friendship with the world. And if you weren't humbled by that first set of verses, uh, James has got a little gift for you at the end. (laughs) I, I really love the practicality of James. It's something that we always talk about when we talk about the book of James. And I like to think of myself as a very logical thinker. And so it really helps me reading this book. But I think there's a sort of matter-of-fact way to James says things that we can start to overlook the depth of what the impact behind his words. So we got seven verses to get through, and if I don't start now, we won't be finished until noon. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Right before service started, Sam Frankhauser looked over at me and she goes, now is today going to be two hours like normal? And I promised her it would, was not. So let's start by looking at verses 11 and 12. Do not speak against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or sister or judges his brother or sister speaks against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge of it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you judging your neighbor? What kind of judgment do we see in this verse? There's a lot of times where we see two different types of judgment in Scripture. One where we are supposed to be judging rightly the intentions of someone, and then there's full-on condemnation. We're supposed to judge our brothers and sisters in Christ. Rightly. There's the key word there. John 7.24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. And this is not the type of judgment that James is talking about here. He is reaffirming that we are not supposed to be condemning each other. Romans 14.4, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Does anything productive ever come from condemning someone? Do we know the difference between condemnation and correction? See, the original lawgiver is the only one able to condemn. We are not even close to being qualified to be that person. We can't even save ourselves. And uh, this verse really reminded me of at the end of Job when God is talking to Job. So Job 38, 4 through 6 Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who set its measurements, since you know? Or who stretched the measuring line over it? On what were its bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstone? God very clearly knows the answers to these questions as he's asking Job. And it is a beautifully humbling thing that I hope never happens to me. When we choose to condemn over correction, we are just showing the condition of our own heart and what, how we view ourselves. 
So when we're correcting, we're trying to get the person to make the right decision next time. We want to come alongside them in love. But when we're condemning, it's all about bringing the negative, all about beating them down as to what they had done. If we do that, what we're doing is we're really showing that we don't believe that there's only one judge. We're elevating ourselves to put us on the same table, same level as God. And that's not exactly where we want to be. Not at all. All right, let's go to verses 13 and 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. For you are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. This set of verses can be very humbling if you allow it to be. It's so easy to get wrapped up in our minds and think about plans or things that we need to do and get done and overlook the fact that we are not promised our next breath. And I think Jesus really does a wonderful example of this in Luke 12, 16 through 21. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man was very productive. And he began thinking to himself, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, Ah, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. I will store all my grain and goods there. And I will say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years to come. Relax, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is demanded of you. And as for all you have prepared, who will own it now? Such is the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich in relation to God. We have this notion for some reason as humans that we think of ourselves as untouchable. It's not going to happen to me. Look at all the stuff that I provided myself. Just two weeks ago, us elders and deacons sat up here and talked about humility and pride. If we're not careful, we can lose sight of who the actual one is that's providing for us. So years ago, my dad and I went to a Christian rap conference down in Atlanta. It was fun. It was fun. It doesn't sound fun, but it was fun. Uh, one of the speakers talked about this parable. Uh, he talked about how the rich man is thinking of this plan, and God calls him a fool. And the point that the speaker was impacting was the same one that James is having here. We have to submit our thoughts and minds to Christ. Like, we know it's okay to make a plan. We talked about this about a month ago, I guess, in Proverbs 16.9. The mind of a man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. But we must recognize that the only reason we can plan things or have a future is because God allows us to. Do we really recognize ourselves as fragile beings? I lost my spot. I'm sure we do. I'm not sure we do a lot of times. Let's look at Psalm 103, 14 through 16. For he knows himself, our form. He is mindful that we are nothing but dust. 
As for man, his days are like grass, like a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over, it is no more, and its place no longer knows about it. Who would know us better than the one who created us? We are a vapor, as James says, or a flower in the field. But I think the most telling part from this psalm is the end. It talks about the wind coming and taking the flower away, and then the place where the flower was does not even know about it anymore. The world has this idea that you can make your mark on history and live forever. They believe that you can make a great movie, maybe win some awards, maybe even find the cure for COVID, and that the world will never forget you. But that's just not how it works. People will be forgotten. Accomplishments will vanish, and books fade away. But there is one way to live forever, and that is through the blood of Christ. So I want to continue on in Psalm 103. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear him. His justice is to the children's children and to those who keep his covenant. He remember his precepts so as to them. He was just talking about how we are dust and how we were flowers in a field, gone. And yet he's still good to us, even though we're fragile and frail. He provides this opportunity for us to spend eternity with him through Jesus. He is a good father. And in this recognition that we are super squishy, super poppable, we allow ourselves to submit our minds to God. The message at that conference that day really impacted me. Uh, I had, I've grown up in the church. I've heard that before. I know that God knows my thoughts and my mind. But when the speaker was talking about how the man didn't even do anything, he just thought about it. He's just standing in his field thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to tear down these barns and build some new ones. And God goes, you fool! It really, it made me actually realize the depth behind it to know that things that I think about on a daily day, God sees that. And I definitely need to keep that pure and holy. Verse 16. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. First off, being boastful and proud of ourselves is already bad. We, we finalized that a couple weeks ago. But this is a next level thing when we are proud of the arrogance that we already have. This is a con- continuation from the last couple verses. We say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And tell all these people without once acknowledging that we are only doing it because God has allowed us to. And it's a, it's a real different notion because I think a lot of times we, in our heads, we acknowledge that, yeah, God's going to allow me to do this. But it's good that we need to keep our mind pure and actually submit that to Christ. Arrogance and pride are only going to lead us down roads of destruction and that's the opposite way that Christ has been calling us. All right, verse 17. So, for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. I'm going to read that again for you. 
So for one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, for him it is sin. Barney called this in our Tuesday night meeting one of the scariest verses in Scripture. And I totally agree. I can think of a number of times in my life where I knew what the right thing to do was and I chose the easy path. And I'm not happy to admit that. James takes this whole chapter of what he's been, things for Christians to avoid doing, and he sums it up with this beautiful little bow tie. So let's look at some of the things that he had told us to fill our ignorance. Lusting and envious of others. Yeah, that's not a good thing. Asking with wrong motives. Not good. Friendship with the world, a.k.a. enemy of God. Definitely not good. Warning against pride. Yeah. Humbling ourselves before the Lord. We don't really do that enough. Not judging and condemning our brothers. Yeah. Submitting your mind to Christ. Mm. Arrogance and boasting of that arrogance. Another phrase that was thrown around on our Tuesday night group was ignorance of the law is not an excuse. <laughs> Living a life that is righteous is never, was never going to be an easy task. If someone told you that, I'm sorry, they were lying. It's not. The easy choice is not always the right choice. And doing the right thing can be hard. That's why it's called the right thing and not the easy thing. So several months ago, I also helped with the youth group for context purposes. We decided to take the youth through this curriculum called Story-Formed Life. And years ago, we did this as a church on like a Wednesday night thing, for some of you may remember. It's a really good curriculum, very thought-provoking. What it does best, though, is it gets the kids open to discussing, to talking about the scripture, what they see, what stands out to them. But what I really, really love about it is it lays the foundation for this narrative that we are not the main characters of our lives, that we are just supporting characters in God's story. The world hates this idea because they want to be the star. Get out of my way. I'm awesome. You need to submit to me. And I guess they think it's really cool to be thinking that way, but it's really just a fantasy world. Because even if you're not willingly submitting to God, eventually you will have to answer for that. And there's a worldly authority that you're still going to have to answer to now. And remember what I was just saying about being vapor and dust? A flower blown in the, blown in the breeze. For a second, I want you all to think about the greatest stories that you've been told over your lifetime. For some of you, that's more than others. In a lot of these stories, the main character is doing something different, unique. They are, doing, they are either fulfilling some ancient prophecy, doing things that someone could never do on their own. And I want you to be honest with yourself for a second. Does that sound like you? Probably not, but there is someone that it does sound like. The story, our story, time begins with God. The story is about God creating humanity and then humanity turning against him. And here's where we get to really display that we are not main character material. 
If it were us and we had created something and then it decided it was going to rebel and reject us, would we not smite it and start over? If we're honest with ourselves, that yes. And then the story continues. God sends prophets and begins to share with people his plan for how he's going to bring back humanity to give a salvation And then we see God send his son to live amongst humanity and then eventually die for their acts against God himself. Earlier we read James 4, 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. We could not save ourselves, even if we tried. But we have to recognize that if we could save ourselves, then Jesus doesn't need to die on the cross. And that's not what happened at all. And here's the beautiful part. The story doesn't end here. It continues. The true main character, God, uses us, fragile beings, to continue to tell his story so that more and more people will have an opportunity to come to know him. If we don't submit ourselves to the Lord, we will miss out on being a part of God's plan. Uh, For example, let's look at King Saul. He was a king chosen by God to lead Israel, and he reigned for 42 years. Uh, Excuse me. God allowed him to reign for 42 years. Then what happens? Saul disobeys God. God gave him a very distinct command, and he chose to go against it. And then the Lord appoints David as the next king. In 1 Samuel, it says the Lord regretted making Saul king. I pray every night that I never make the Lord regret putting me in the position that I'm in right now. Saul became someone who was so filled with pride and demonstrates exactly what happens when we lose track of whose story we are a part of. So my plea for you this morning, my plea to you, other than the one I gave you at the very beginning, is that you take time, humble yourself enough to think, look at your life and ask yourself, am I living as though I'm supporting God's plan? We may have been made from dust, and our time here may be that of a vapor or a fleeting flower, but God still gives us things that we can be a part, do to be a part of the bigger picture. The main, the main one that I can think of is the Great Commission. Go, make disciples. And this may sound very scary, but if God's desire is for all men to come to know him, and we get to be a part of that main desire to share that, that's one of the greatest roles that a supporting character could have. Earlier, I read you a piece from Job, um, and God was putting Job in his place, and I wanted to look at Job's response. Job 40, verse 4, behold, I am insignificant. What can I say in response to you? I put my hand on my mouth. Job is able to recognize his role in the bigger picture. Granted, it took two chapters of God giving him the what for to do that. I want to be a part of God's plan, part of his story. 
I want myself to get out of the way so that I can continue to be a part of that. And I want that for all of you as well. James' practicality in chapter 4 is a wonderful guide in setting you up to being a part of that story. 